Welcome to Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, where I drink, discuss, and discover the world of distilled spirits. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. This is episode 51, and I'm drinking Plymouth Gin. For each episode of this podcast, you should expect that I'll be well-researched and educational, also entertaining and consistent in my reviews. I chose to feature Plymouth Gin on this episode because it's an old brand with a story, and it's a category of one. So let's find out together what makes it unique. The bottle of Plymouth Gin I have for this tasting is a standard 750 milliliter. It is 41.2% alcohol by volume, making it 82.4 proof, and a bottle retails for about $38. The bottle itself is a light green glass, wide but thin with a broad rounded shoulder. It's topped by a stubby neck capped with a copper-colored heat shrink with the words The Original Strength English Gin above the date 1793. The front label is information dense. It's oval with the words Plymouth Gin in white on a blue field with copper accents. Center of the label is a depiction of the Mayflower with text that reads, In 1620, the Mayflower set sail from Plymouth on a journey of hope and discovery. Additional smaller text below this reads, Batch distilled in the original Victorian copper still. And then an elaborate script says, Blackfriars Distillery. Bottom of the label reads, Coates & Co., Plymouth Limited, and then molded into the glass is Established 1793 and Blackfriars Distillery. On the back of the bottle, a small clear label tells a brief brand story, but there's also a small friar depicted to one side of the bottle at the bottom. He's viewable from the front through the gin. It's a cool little feature. And there's a story that when the friar's feet got dry, it's time for a new bottle of gin. Anyway, let's give it a taste and let's open this bottle up. It's a sealed bottle, so let's try and get in. Actually, there's no... (laughs) not exactly sure how to get through this foil. Alright, I gotta get a knife. No, I was wrong. There was a handy little tear strip. I didn't quite see it, though. Uh, I knifed it open. Anyway, I got that off. So let's go for a pop. Is this a screw cap? Yeah, it's a screw cap. Alright, comes right off. And as I do with all spirits, I'm using a clean Glencairn glass for the tasting. So let's go for a pour. (laughs) Nice. In the glass, it's completely clear. It's as if I poured water. That is hallmark of gin, clear as gin. On the nose, it's rather soft. It smells of gin, but different than other gins that I've smelled. There's an earthiness, a citrusy bit. More of the, I know what's in it, and I'll list botanicals in just a bit as well, but there's a little of the burn from the ethanol. It's definitely junipery, but I wouldn't say juniper forward. Bit of citrus, maybe some of the coriander punching through. Okay, so I'm tasting it neat in a Glencairn, so it's Room temperature, undiluted, no ice, just straight out of the bottle. So, let's go for a taste. Mm. I get some of the ethanol burn. That's just me waking up my palate. Let me give it another taste. Mm. 
I'd say it's soft. Soft is kind of the mouthfeel. Obviously, I can taste and feel the alcohol. It's, uh, you know, over 80 proof at 41 point, was it 41.2% ABV? So, yeah, definitely can feel that as I drink it, but not a lot of juniper. I can taste the juniper, but, you know, if anything, I get more of like a... I want to call it orris root. It's like an orris root is it's the root of iris and it's a bit bitter, but it's almost like a soft violet. I'm going for another taste. Yeah, it's soft and easy, better earthiness. Yeah, I'm kidding. In the finish, I'm getting more earthiness, slight hint of bitterness in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Soft is my description, I would say, for Plymouth Gin. Very different than a London Dry in that it, it just feels a little earthier. Creamy maybe isn't the right description, but we'll go with soft. Okay, let's get into the history of Plymouth Gin. Plymouth Gin is made in the oldest British distillery that's still active today. As the bottle states, the brand dates back to 1793, but some records suggest that distilling may have been happening at the site as early as the 1690s. And it is, of course, made in Plymouth, England. And as I alluded to at the beginning of the episode, Plymouth Gin is a category of one when it comes to types of gin. The brand name and style are synonymous, but it wasn't always this way. Plymouth Gin as a style is differentiated from the most common London Dry in that it's drier and a bit more citrus forward is what most people say. I don't really get that. They also say it's got more of a spicy finish. I think an earthiness may be a better description. And this earthiness probably comes from the orris root and the angelica root that are part of Plymouth Gin's distinctive style. The distillery that Plymouth Gin is made in is the Blackfriars Distillery, and it is claimed to have been built beginning in 1431 as a Dominican order monastery, and the monks, or friars, wore a black cloak over their habits, giving them the name Blackfriars. And the building was a monastery until the King of England, Henry VIII, dissolved monasteries in the 1530s. It had other uses before becoming a distillery, and notably in 1620, the building was the last spot in England where the voyagers on the Mayflower stayed before sailing to America and landing at what they christened Plymouth Rock. And this imagery, both the Blackfriars Distillery and the Mayflower are, of course, featured prominently on the bottle. In 1793, the Coates family purchased the Blackfriars Distillery and sold gin under the Coates & Co. name with Plymouth, England noted. So it was Coates & Co. Plymouth Gin for most of its history. Due to proximity, it seems, the distillery provided gin to the British Royal Navy, who was based just behind the distillery at the dockyard. Because of this, Coates & Co. Plymouth Gin was taken around the world. Famously, however, the British Navy required that spirits taken on board their sailing ships be of a high enough proof that if a barrel of the spirit spilled on a barrel of gunpowder, the gunpowder would still ignite. And this is where we get the term proof. It comes from the Royal Navy test for spirits. 
At the time, it was almost impossible to determine the alcohol content of a distilled spirit. The hydrometer hadn't yet been invented, so the way to tell if a spirit was safe to sail, essentially, was to take a portion of gunpowder and soak it in the spirit. And then if the gunpowder would alight with a clean flame, it was proved to be safe. And so this is where it came to be known as a proof. And in the UK, this was referred to as a hundred degrees of proof or 100 proof, which would translate to 57% alcohol by volume. It gets tricky that in the U.S. we know proof as two times ABV number. So 57% ABV is 114 proof in the U.S. However, the U.K. used 100 degrees proof at 57% ABV as their proof number for well over a century. And this U.K. proof wasn't discontinued until the very early 1970s. Nowadays in the United Kingdom and Europe in general, potency on distilled spirits is just defined by the alcohol by volume number. But anyway, gin aboard a sailing ship, safety first, I guess, had to make sure it would alight. But uh, no matter that sailors may have caught a little bit of a buzz from the spirit, gin was actually required to be on board for health reasons. It was used to ward off illnesses. But most may have actually been consumed by officers. That's who was really drinking the gin. Regular sailors mostly drank rum. But as time went on, the craft of distilling got more scientific, and the invention of the hydrometer allowed more precise measuring of a percent alcohol by volume, and gin in general moved down to about 40% ABV to settle at an 80 proof, as we would call it here in the United States. In 1993, the term Navy Strength Gin was coined by a man named John Murphy, who was a brand consultant working for Plymouth Gin, and thus they created a subcategory of gin that's traditionally 57% ABV. Plymouth, of course, makes one of the best, so I'm told, but what I'm drinking is the lower proof or standard Plymouth Gin. But before that, well before that, actually more than a century before, in 1882, a trademark was registered for Plymouth Gin, making this gin the first to have a protected geographical designation, meaning only gin made in the city limits of Plymouth, England could be called Plymouth Gin, and because Coates & Co. owned the trademark on it, other distilleries had to call theirs Plymouth-style gin. It seems all the other gin distillers in town have gone out of business, leaving just Plymouth. During the Second World War, the distillery was bombed, and a lot of the records, including the original recipe for Plymouth Gin, were lost. But even without the recipe, the knowledge from the distillers was passed on. So as far as they know, they're still producing Plymouth Gin to the original recipe, at least in the original manner in which it was produced with the original ingredients. And according to Plymouth's master distiller, Sean Harris, Plymouth had a checkered past from 1953 to about 1996. This was due to what appears to have been public ownership by Allied Lions, a spirit and wine conglomerate that was eventually merged into other players in the industry. In 1996, Coats & Co. went back into private hands when a management group purchased it, and they set about reinvigorating it. They switched back to a grain alcohol and invested in the brand. Their investment paid off because in 2004, Coats & Co. was sold to the Swedish company VNS Group who also made Absolute Vodka. 
And once VNS bought the brand, they renamed it to Plymouth Gin, dropping the Coats & Co. preceding the brand name, though it had been known as Plymouth Gin for well over a century. Then in 2008, the French spirits conglomerate Pernod Ricard acquired VNS Group and became owner of Plymouth Gin. Pernod Ricard has Plymouth Gin as part of their new brand ventures portfolio today, and they consider Plymouth as an emerging brand. Under their current ownership, they've made some changes and investments in the storied brand. Perhaps the most impactful would be the decision to give up the EU-protected status of the brand in 2014. This was due to the fact that to maintain the protected status, they would have to divulge the trade secrets of how they made the gin and seem to have wisely chosen to keep the secret and lose the geographic protected designation. So that's the history. Now let's talk about how it's made. Plymouth Gin, like all gin, is essentially a flavored vodka. It's the first flavored vodka, to be honest. It's just flavored with juniper. That's the one key required ingredient to make a flavored vodka a gin. You've got to use juniper. And Plymouth is made with a grain-based distillate today. And this is a high-proof spirit that is then blended with botanicals to infuse their flavor to the spirit. The botanicals used in Plymouth Gin include, of course, juniper, then coriander, orange peel, lemon peel, angelica root, green cardamom, and orris root. It's made in small batches, but small is a relative term. We're talking, you know, 12,000 plus liters at a time. And it's made in this historic copper Victorian still, pot still, from about 1855. And with each batch, the master distiller will test to be sure that it's up to the Plymouth standard. So this is mostly done on smell and taste. After distillation is complete, they're going to dilute it to the appropriate bottling proof package it, and ship it all over the world. Now on to cocktails and consumption. One of the rare things about Plymouth Gin or something that has added to the brand heritage is Plymouth Gin is listed by name in over 20 cocktail recipes in the landmark Savoy Cocktail Book that was published in 1930. This named reference in this cocktail book made Plymouth Gin a choice for a long time for cocktails and still has influence on the brand today. As a very old gin, as a brand and classic gin at that, this Plymouth Gin is great for a martini. It may be argued it's the original gin for a martini. It of course is also great in a gin and tonic and because Plymouth Gin is softer and less bold than a London dry style, it's really nice in a cocktail. So it's very cocktail friendly. So in summary, what do I think of Plymouth Gin? It's a classic. You must have a bottle on your bar if you want to have this style of gin. It is nice and soft, again, is the description that just keeps coming forward to me. I've been sipping on my sample as I've been recording this episode, and it's great. I like it neat. I need to get some good tonic, try it with some tonic. Also, gotta shake me up a martini or two, though I'm not a fan of the olive, and the olive is debated as well. But yeah, um, Plymouth Gin, it's been made in the same place for centuries, literally. The current owner, Pernod Ricard, has got it in good hands. They're gonna be a good steward of the brand for the foreseeable future. It's got some real heritage to it, so I don't know why you would not have Plymouth Gin in your well-stocked bar. 
So that's going to do it for this episode of Liquor and the Core Connoisseur. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. Please subscribe and share. Do tell your friends if you enjoy listening to this podcast. I want more people to listen to this podcast. Show notes are on liquorinthecoreconnoisseur.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcast platform. I strive to be available everywhere you get your podcasts. The show is also on social media. Instagram and Facebook are where I'm most active. And if there's a spirit you'd like me to feature in the future, please do reach out and let me know. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>